Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Ruben Amalalo, and I'm the youth ministry director here at FCF. Um, but some of you might not know, um, I'm also an intern um, under the Presbytery, which is our denomination. Um, so occasionally I get the privilege to preach um, to you guys, and you guys get to hear, <laughs> hear me preach. But um, uh, that also means that I get a lot of responses that are really encouraging, that confirms for me that this is what the Lord has called me to do. Um, and I just thank you guys for your prayers and all your support and everything. Um, so uh, today I'm uh, actually going to talk to you guys about um, Isaiah's encounter with God in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, where Isaiah sees the Lord. Um, but before I read the passage for us, I have a question to ask you. Um, have you ever imagined what God is like? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet God? What do, you, what do you think you would say to God? And what do you think God would say to you? Now, Pastor, today we come across Isaiah, a prophet of God, who is already working for God. He speaks on the behalf of God. Um, until one day he was called up into the office. He's given a job that, frankly speaking, most of us would not want. He's guaranteed failure. Yeah, he takes the job anyway. So let me read the passage for us, and then um, I'll pray, and then we'll get to it. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 1 through 13, but I'll focus on 1 through 8. Um, this is the word of the Lord. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs Seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, had, that he had taken with tongs, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and the eyes and the ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants. And houses without people, 
and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent may remain, may, a tent remain in it, it will be burned up again, like a terabith, like a, terab- a terabinth, sorry, or an oak, whose stump remains when it is fell. The, seed, the, the holy seed is its stump. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that instruct us in how to live and how to think about you. Um, I pray, Lord, that as um, I deliver your word, uh, you'd give me a heart of humility. I pray that you'd help us to um, understand you better, to know you better, and to worship you rightly, Lord. Um, I pray that any words that are not of you will fall on deaf ears. But Lord, uh, the words that you want to give your people will fall on good soil so that we might grow into maturity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I used to work as an assistant manager in a shoe store called Finish Line. And um, occasionally, the district manager, who is my manager's boss, would show up. And whenever he would tell us he's coming, we'll go through great lengths to try to clean up the store. Now, if you work in retail or you work in a fast food business, you know what it's like to have your, your boss's boss in the house. It's not very uh, pleasant. And oftentimes, we'll spend days trying to clean up the store. But there are times when my boss's boss's boss will come. And with those times, you're spending days cleaning up. And there are times when my boss's 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 boss will come up, and that's, that's just, that was terrifying. And no one would want to work on those days because he knew if you didn't do a good job cleaning up, and that one dust bunny that you didn't catch shows up, you're in trouble. That's it for you in finish line, no promotion. The rationale was that if you could not make the store presentable for the vice president of the store, you did not deserve to be a store manager. Well, in our passage today, Isaiah meets his boss's 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 boss. It's infinite, actually. He, me- he, he meets the boss, right? And Isaiah finds out all the dust bunnies that he ever tried to hide. So today, from our passage, I have four points, actually. Um, And yeah, they're up there. The first point I have for you is um, the holy one. Second is the unclean one. The third is the touched one. And the last is the sent one. So the first point, the holy one. See, rarely do the prophets actually give us the exact time of when they get their visions. Um, and often you just have all these visions in the prophets that just like jumble together. Um, but Isaiah tells us exactly when he gets this vision of the Lord. He says it was in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah, the longest reigning king in Israel, who reigned for 52 years, died. Said, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. 
In summary, the year that the longest reigning king in Judah died, I, Isaiah, saw another king on his throne. The sovereign one sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, or high and exalted above everything. After that, not his actual robe, but the train, the hem, the edge, the lower part of his robe filled the temple. Imagine the edge of a wedding dress engulfing this sanctuary. Add to that, he has special created creatures, fiery creatures, who found him too majestic to even look upon him. They had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Now, this is the only place in the, in the Bible they're actually named. Um, they're called seraphim. In Revelation chapter 4, um, my kids reminded me, because uh, we're doing Revelations in Sunday school, they reminded me that, well, there's also creatures with six wings in Revelations 4, but they're not named, okay? So I got them on that one. They're not named. Um, they're just told they have six wing, wings. But add to that, these fiery creatures that, that are called seraphim, which actually means fiery, right, um, had a unique description of what they were not seeing. What they were not seeing, right? And they were, they were shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in Revelations, we are told they literally do this night and day. All day. Their mere existence, their mere existence is to proclaim how holy God is. God has creatures, y'all, who literally <laughs> stand in front of him and proclaim his holiness night and day. Now, you might say that's pretty egotistic of God. It's only egotistic if it's not true. <laughs> Nothing is more true than for a creature to see its maker, its pure maker, its holy maker, its separate, different maker, and to proclaim it. I, I like to imagine it like this, like the day that the seraphs were, were created, right? As soon as they were created, they looked around. They looked around and, and had nothing else to say because God had given them such insight that they could only speak the truth. They could only speak the truth. And they do this night and day. How amazing is that? 
And get this, they get pleasure out of doing this. They enjoy doing this. This is what they are created for. Enjoy. They enjoy doing this night and day. No food, no water, no, nothing. That's all they want to do. It's very interesting, actually, also to note that Isaiah tells us about God's throne. He tells us about the edge of God's robe. He tells us the creatures around God. He tells us what they are like, what they are saying. But he doesn't tell us what God looks like. He doesn't. It seems like he's trying to find words to communicate that God is out there. He's way beyond us. Not only that, God is so dense. The room is so filled that he cannot even get a better look. He can't see. Now that's what glory means. It means God is heavy. He's weighty. He has substance. See, Moses, Moses, when Moses asks God, let me see your face, God tells him, no man shall see my face and live. In, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, David gathers 30,000 Israelites in great celebration and pomp to bring back the ark of the Lord to the people of God. There's a lot of excitement. And we're told it's a new cart. They put the ark of the covenant on a new cart. And it said like three times, new cart, <laughs> to emphasize that it's a new cart. But the cart stumbles, and Uzzah, driving the cart, reaches out so that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't touch the dust. Because he thinks that will profane the Ark of the Covenant. Then the Lord strikes him, dead. The Lord kills him. That's the thanks he gets for trying to save the Ark of the Covenant from touching the dust. That's the thanks he gets from God. See, God had not commanded them to carry the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, no matter how new it is. He'd given strict instructions about how to transport the cart from one place to another. See, because it's holy, when he gives holy instructions, it has to be holily kept, even if that's a word. Commenting on the holiness of God and, and this ark um, situation, R.C. Sproul says, see, dirt never sinned against God. Dirt was just being dirt. It was enjoying being dirt. <laughs> Uzzah, on the other hand, Uzzah's very existence was an offense to God. The very breath he was breathing was an offense to God because he was in rebellion to God. Last week, Pastor Stan mentioned uh, that sociologist Christian Smith said, Christian youth culture today in America is defined by a moralism that seeks therapy so that they can feel good about themselves in relation to this 
supreme being who just spin the world into existence in high hopes that his people will figure out how things are supposed to work. Christian Smith calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. In our passage today, we come across his encounter with a guy that's anything and therapeutic. <laughs> anything but wants us to feel good about ourselves. See, the, the seraph, the seraphim are everything we are not. See, their very existence, everything in their body they use to glorify God. Everything in their body they use to recognize the holiness of God. Everything they use to highlight God's otherness, his separateness, his differentness from us, his moral purity. See, Isaiah's encounter shows us that God has actually given us creatures enough information and insight to recognize this holiness about God. Which brings me to my second point, the unclean ones. So upon seeing the king, the Lord, Isaiah made this observation. We are all the same in comparison to God, in need of help. Elsewhere in, um, in the Bible, in, in uh, the 26th chapter of Second Chronicles, we are told that under Isaiah's, uh, Uzziah, um, under Uzziah's kingship, Judah was actually quite prosperous. Right? Militarily, he defeated the Philistines. Now, this, when, whenever the Bible said a king defeats the Philistines, that's like keyword for there's peace. Because from the very beginning of Israel's inception, the Philistines were a pest. They were a pest. Read the book of Judges. They just keep showing up. They just don't go away. So when Saul comes on the scene, he defeats the Philistines. That's supposed to mean that there's good things. When David comes, he defeats the Philistines. So Isaiah does that. Not only that, the Ammonites came and paid tribute to him. We're told that he built towers to protect towers to protect the folks in the city. He improved the military might, created new weapons. In short, the defense budget was really nice. In short, their military was not to be messed with. Agriculturally, they were also very prosperous. He cut out many cisterns for water in the wilderness. And we're even told religiously, ceremonially, there's a lot of stuff going on in the temple. Uh, this is all during Isaiah, uh, Uzziah's reign. But, like Uzzah, it got into his head. It's pretty tragic, actually, how Uzziah ends up. He dies as a leper king. Because he went into the temple and tried to offer sacrifices that God had not commanded him. Specifically, he tried to offer incense that God had not commanded him. So right away, he's stricken with leprosy. From chapter 1 to chapter 5 of Isaiah's prophecy, he gives us 
another lens view of actually what's going on during this prosperous time. What's really going on during Isaiah's kingship? The first few sections, well, the first few verses in Isaiah's prophecy actually goes like this. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. And you might ask, I thought Israel was prosperous during this time. I thought the economy looked good. I thought the stock market was going up. I thought there was peace all around. But there I say, God measures success and prosperity a little differently than us. Even religiously, right? In verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 1, he tells us, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the well-fed beast. I do not delight in your blood, in the blood of your bulls or the lambs of your goats. And then in verse 16, the Lord tells them, Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. This family is how God measures prosperity. This family is how the church exploded. And this family is what it looks like for us to be a church that's prospering. To learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the cause of the widows. But this is the case that actually the Lord has against his people, and Isaiah has the privilege of delivering it. The only thing about this is that this is the very indictment that the Lord has always had against his people from the very beginning. This is the case that the Lord has had against humanity from the very start. We don't seek justice. We don't correct oppression. We don't care about the widows, nor do we care about the orphans. We don't. Tell me something new, Isaiah. Tell me something I already didn't know. 2,700 years later, Isaiah's message is still very relevant. We don't seek justice. What's the problem, Isaiah? Tell me something new. Well, the question I've asked myself about this is, why does Isaiah actually have this vision? Why is Isaiah having this vision? Why is he called into the office? Why is he called into the throne room? So I backed up a little bit into chapter 3 and chapter 5. So in chapter 3, verse 11, Isaiah pronounces woe on specific people. And he says, woe to the wicked. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more. There's no more room. And you're made to dwell alone 
in the midst of the land. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening, as wine inflames them. Verse uh, 18 says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart robes. 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 21, it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 22, he says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and violent men in mixing strong drink. But when we get to chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me. Woe is me. What happened? What happened, Isaiah? I thought the problem was out there. I thought it was those people. They are messing up the world. They are causing all the problems. Those people. What I think happened is that Isaiah, the prophet of God, who was already prophesying, finally met God. He finally saw the holiness of God. See, this is what happens, family, when men and women and children come face to face with the holiness of God. We see that the problem is not out there. In fact, we carry the problem with us. We are the problem. G.K. Chesterton was, was, uh, was responding to a report that somebody put out in a newspaper during World War I or II, I don't remember. And uh, it was asked, what's the problem with the world? And Chesterton, in his very smart, um, smart alecky response, just wrote one sentence. I am wrong with the world. See, Isaiah sees that compared to God, we are all the same. The developer who's exploiting the city's poor neighborhoods. The rich who is aloof to the evil of the city. Of the, city. the drunk, the drug dealer, the corrupt politicians, the police, corrupt police. There I say, even the worst husband and the worst wife in the world. We are all the same. We end this together, y'all. We end this together. But we miss something really significant. If the only conclusion we make from this encounter is that we are all the same, I, I personally don't take comfort in knowing that if the situations are right, I could become a drug dealer. I don't take comfort in that at all. I also don't take comfort in the fact that if situations are really right, I could be very aloof to the needs of the poor. I already see that in myself. I already have the raw material in myself. I know this about myself. <coughs> I think that the point is that we are all the same before a holy God, and no one is perfect, and we need help. See, my brother Anadak, um, I was trying to figure out how to best say this or just think about Isaiah and all that stuff. And uh, he was trying to help me to think about sin and original sin and all that stuff. And, um, 
And he says, I shouldn't just quote him because he's actually getting this from James Montgomery Boyce, um, who used to be a, a pastor in Philly. So this is what Brother Anadad, via James Montgomery Boyce, who I'll actually commend to you as well. Um, this is what he says about sin. We should not miss the fundamental point that sin is first and foremost rebellion against God. In other words, unfaithfulness, unbelief, and the rejection of, of God to become autonomous and independent from our maker. This is what Adam and Eve committed in the garden and that we have inherited as their progeny through what is called the original sin, guilt and corruption. When we have lost the perfect image of God in us through the rebellion, we have, not, we have no capacity to imitate God. And thus, we break the law in our default posture. I love that word. Default. Believe me on default. The harvick I will create. <laughs> oh, praise God. Um, and then he goes, he says, we go on seeking our self-interest, violating God's commands to love in our na- loving the neighbor, seeking justice, etc., etc. But the fundamental turning point was turning away from God. This is what we have all done, resulting in different degrees of sins and experiencing their natural consequences. Amen. Hallelujah. Which brings me to my third point the touched one. Isaiah said, Then one of the serf flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, had, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. This, friends, is to show us that the Lord has every right to consume Isaiah with fire. I think part of the reason why he had to be told that, that his sin has been taken away is that Isaiah saw this creature coming towards him. This magnificent creature coming towards him. What calls? What do you think he's thinking? <laughs> Isaiah knows what he deserves. He knows what he deserves. He's before the morally pure, righteous God. But this, friends, is to show us that God does not treat us according to what we rightly deserve. This Friends, it's to show us that even in our unholiness, the Lord has not purposed to destroy us for our dirty mouths, but has made a way for us to be at peace with him. If only we will see our own dirt. If only he will open our eyes. If only he will bring us into his presence so that we see how holy and righteous and perfect and unlike us he is. If only we will confess our sins. He is more than faithful and just to correct our unrighteousness, 
to forgive us. So Isaiah goes on to inform, Isaiah is informed, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, there's twofold thing going on here, right? Taken away and atoned for. Taken away and atoned for. Taken away and atoned for. God doesn't just forgive us, right? He pays for it. And this is significant. God doesn't just take our sin away in high hopes that we work our way back into his good side. He takes it away and pays for it infinitely. This is the gospel, friends. This is the gospel, family. This is the good news that we come here to celebrate. This is the thing that needs to drive us or else we'll be driven by guilt by fear, by obligation. And we will run out of gas. Your guilt is not enough to change you. Let me say that one last time. Your guilt is not enough to change you. Your sense of sinfulness is not enough to change you either. If anything, it will weigh you down. The thing that changes us is for us to meet a holy, righteous, perfect God and to see him racing towards us, to touch us, to take our sin away and to atone for that sin. That's the thing that drives. That's the thing that changes our hearts. That's the thing that will drive David in Psalm 16 to say, in your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand there's, there's pleasures evermore. And he will also say in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is taken away. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. See, God not only takes away our dirt in high hopes that we don't get dirty again, I guarantee you, you'll get dirty again. Or that somehow we can pay him back. If you're doing good, if you're coming to church, if you're doing any good at all, only because you want to pay God back, you don't, you, one, you don't see how expensive it is for us to sin against God. And two, you don't see how much it would take to pay him back. <laughs> see, that's, that's why Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 1 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you, a gospel contrary to the one you received. Let him be accursed. He says it like three times. Even if an angel, if an angel came to you with a different gospel, telling you there's something you can do for God to love you, let those woes be upon him. 
If you see that angel, come and run. <laughs> he has the touch of death, not the ch- touch of forgiveness. Which brings me to my last point, the sent one. I wasn't actually going to add this point because I thought it took away from the gospel. I just want us to reflect on the gospel and enjoy it, just what God has done for us, right? Because that's the good news. The good news is what God has done for us, not what we can do. But I was encouraged. I was encouraged by seasoned seasoned members of Faith Christian Fellowship, like Anadad and Pastor Stan and Pastor Craig. You need to add the sent one. And it's not the catch, right? Because a lot of us get that confused. What's the catch? God has forgiven me. Now what? What's the catch? There is no catch. If you notice, Isaiah is freely forgiven. Nothing. No question asked. You're good. We're God. We're cool. We can chill. We can hang out. Right? So let's get that clear. So that's the God. That's the good. It's done. Right? The Bible is clear that our relationship with God is not dependent on anything we do, but everything that God has done. See, the life that we now live is, is, is out, of, out of gratitude and, and out of the forgiveness that he's given us, out of the atonement he's made for us, the price he's paid. See, God is not a tyrant. He doesn't want us to serve him out of obligation. Think of your wife or your husband. Like, if you ask them, why do you love me? And they say, because I have to love you. Because otherwise, right? That's not cute. (laughs) That might get you on the couch. (laughs) Right? God wants us to love him out of love. He wants us to love him out of gratitude. Serve him. So Isaiah, um, as you can see, did not, absolutely nothing to receive the forgiveness he gets. But it's interesting to note that Isaiah was already prophesying even before he was told he was guilty. So there is such a thing as working for God without knowing why you're doing it. There is such a thing as, as working for God because you don't get it. There's such a thing. Isaiah was a prophet. Read, read some of the prophecies that he, he gave. He was pretty spot on, too. <laughs> he knew exactly what was wrong with his culture. And he knew what would fix it. He knew it intellectually, right? But experientially, that love. So Martin Luther, um, the reformer, was asked, do you love God? And this is before his, his own conversion. And he says, love God. Now, this is a monk. He was a monk. He said, love God. I hate God. It's a consuming fire. I'm afraid of him. I hate him. He, he kept constantly going to confession because Martin Luther had a, had a strong view of God's holiness. See, but it was an unhealthy view of God's holiness because he only had the holy, righteous, pure God. He didn't get the holy, loving, kind pursuing, passionate for us, God. You can't have one without the other. 
Because you'd be lopsided. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a God that's so perfect. He doesn't make a way for us to dwell with him. God wants to dwell with us. God wants to live with us. He wants for us to be in relationship. He wants to be married to us. To pour out his love on us. That's, that's why God created us. Not because he needed us, but because he loved us. So, God puts out an ad in verse 8. Who shall go, who shall I send, and who will go for us? See, Isaiah didn't even know what the job was. Let me repeat that. Isaiah did not know what the job was. But he knows who he is working for. He knew who was calling him. He knew it was the God who is righteous and perfect and holy, yet forgives sins. That's the God that was calling him. He didn't care if King Uzziah was dead. He didn't care if the people wouldn't hear him. But Isaiah comes forward and says, Here I am, send me. Not knowing what the mission was. As Barry Ross says in his commentary, Isaiah literally gets in front of God as much as he can and says, Look at me, check me out, send me. See, how does a man go from, woe is me, I am undone, quivering, quivering, shaking, literally afraid of God, more than afraid, coming apart in front of God, to getting in front of God and saying, look at me, send me, I'll go. I'll tell you how. It's the joy and the peace and the reconciliation and the justification and just the free flow of relationship that comes with knowing that God, the God, has atoned for my sin. He's taken it away. I don't care what he wants to send me. I don't care what the message is. Send me, God. Send me. And that, family, is what it means for God to be holy. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Um, Thank you for revealing to us your holiness through Isaiah's experience. Pray that more and more, Lord, we would reflect on it. Help us not to love you out of fear. Help us not to serve you out of obligation, but to check our hearts to make sure we are joyfully serving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.